Uh, this event is a, a joint venture, as it were, between the uh, Durham Book Festival and the Durham Moot. Uh, we held the first Durham Moot back in July. Um, it's an event that we associate with the Durham Miners Gala. Um, and that was an opportunity, we use that as an opportunity to um, do some deep thinking about the kind of place that we're living in at the moment uh, and the challenges which our uh, communities face. Um, and as a result of a discussion that we had around the theme of community uh, at the Moot, um, the Durham Book Festival commissioned Richard Benson uh, to, uh, to, to produce a piece of work for discussion here at the, at the Book Festival. Richard, uh, as many of you will know, is the author of the book The Valley, uh, which is a, a deep and rich account of the development of mining communities in the Dern Valley based on the experience of his, of his own family that I'm now going to hand over to, to Richard. Uh, so over to you, Richard. Thank you. I was working on this piece with a photographer called Keith Pattison, who uh, many people here I think will, will know. And Keith shot some images um, in Easington during the miners' strike. 1984 to 5, um, and they're really images that um, have become um, completely iconic of that conflict. Um, and you, you see them used in all sorts of places and on, on all sorts of walls now. Um, and part of what we wanted to do was to, was to go back and revisit East Durham with a sense that it was 30 years since, since that um, conflict had happened. Um, really, the, um, this is a story about um, the past, sorry, about the present and the future, and it's about the things that we inherit, and it's about what we build. It's set in Easington Colliery, which is a village out on the coast, 12 miles to the east of here. Easington Colliery is named for the coal mine that operated there between 1899 and 1993. It's a highly productive mine whose seams extended four miles out under the North Sea, and which infamously, in 1951, a gas explosion 900 feet down took the lives of 83 men. Easington Colliery is famous as the setting for the film Billy Elliot, and in many ways it looks like a classic northern English pit settlement, except that it overlooks the sea that softens the light and sends in its salty, pale grey mists that can change the way the village looks in minutes. This is part one, David and Gillian. It was to Easington Colliery in the mid-1920s that a miner called Miles Handy and his wife Harriet Ann bought their ten children from Stanley in West Durham. The deeper coastal pits attracted a lot of men from the west of the county and Miles was likely hoping for better wages, although in County Durham in the mid-1920s no miners were growing rich. The Handys became a numerous and well-known family, sitting on committees possessed of big personalities. Some of the men in the old days were famously bad-tempered, but perhaps you could give, forgive that given the paying conditions of the 20s and 30s. Miles Handley himself would be killed in Easington Colliery less than 10 years after he arrived, leaving Harriet a widow with two of the children still at home. Of Miles' 10 children, this story follows two lines, those of John, born in 1903, and of young Miles, or Miley, born in 1912. John himself had three sons, Jonas, Ted and George, who, like all the men, these men went to work at the pit. Jonas, Ted and George, remember the names, we'll come back to them. For now, Miley's line. Miley was a hard and strict but dutiful man who had six children, the second youngest of whom was David, born in 1960. David was a smart, quick-witted kid who idolised his mum and his big sister Susan. He loved school, shone at maths and French, although to little end, all the careers advice you got in Easington Colliery School in those days 
was the army and him, him being the manager of the pit. David left school at 15 but couldn't go down the pit then because he'd had asthma and his dad wouldn't let him. He worked at Lipton's where Susan was a deputy manageress and then as a butcher at Dewhurst. One night at the youth club when he was nearly 16, Susan told him that one of her friends, Gillian Simpson, liked him. Gillian, still at school, was a kind, hard-working girl whose dad had a good job at the pit and whose family were respectable and liked nice things. David liked her very much and asked if he could take her to see The Exorcist at the cinema. <laughs> he forgot his wallet and she had to pay, which would turn out to slightly prefigure the future. David impulsive, daft as a brush, some say, and Gillian always prepared, able to hold it together. Knowing that he was onto a good thing, he asked her to marry him two years later, and that meant he had to change jobs. Butchering paid £29 a week, and you couldn't marry a girl on that. Thanks to the union victories in 72 and 74 strikes, however, the pits now paid £98 a week, plus a house off your note and coal. It's a good start in life. Young Miley objected but couldn't stop him now that he was 18, and so they married, and David went down the mine where he worked on the roadways and loved it. Pit houses were in short supply, but he and Jill saw a run-down, windowless, doorless, black clock-infested coal board house on Carroll Street and persuaded the pit housing manager to let them rent it in return for them doing it up. They moved in, and a year later, in 1981, they had their first daughter, Joanne. Three years later, another, Kate. Joanne Handy, Joanne Dodds as she is now, has a memory from being three years old. Policemen piling into her mum and dad's house, ransacking the rooms as he searched for her dad's shotgun. It was August 1984. Her mum, Jill, is getting her dressed, baby Kate is in her pram, and her dad is talking to a policeman who's accusing him of trying to shoot someone. Another policeman gives Joanne his helmet to wear while his colleagues tip out her mum's cupboards and drawers on the floor, and her mum looks cross. She and David have just decorated the living room, a project crowned by the installation of a proud new Artex ceiling. Her dad says, I'm telling you, I haven't got a gun. I bought it for shooting clay pigeons, but it was just a fad. I sold it six months ago. The policeman doesn't believe him, and the policeman in charge says they might have to search the cavities between the floor and ceiling. Jill Handy, however, is not having that. You're not touching that Artex ceiling she says, and there is a standoff. The law of a British state versus the law of the East Durham man. I think what we'll do is take Mr Handy in for questioning, says the policeman in charge, and the Artex is left untouched. This, of course, was during the miners' strike of 1984-5 when Easington Colliery was periodically swamped by police. All the, family, all the handy families stay out on strike and David goes picketing, although David and Jill, like George and Marion and their son Colin, think it's a lost cause when Arthur Scargill, the Pied Piper of Yorkshire, as David calls him, fails to hold a ballot. It's worth saying that David and Jill, like the children, were and remain largely uninterested in party politics. They'd never vote Conservative, but at the last election they didn't vote at all. However... The loyalty to the union remains passionate. When we were talking about it, and I asked how they'd feel about the union, they just said, oh, the union, that's different. I could talk for a long time um, about the strike stories, but um, 
they have the strike stories in East Durham have been documented elsewhere, and I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. But suffice to say um, that although it was a time of terrific hardship, it's now remembered very warmly that it's solidarity, a really important source of pride and identity. David remembers enjoying seeing the kids more often. People talk about the Christmas as the best one that anyone ever had, although by the end of the strike they were mentally and financially drained. As for the shotgun, well, when the first strike breaker, a man called Wilkinson, went back to work, he'd come down to work in a pit yard opposite some houses where David and his mate Kev were sunbathing on top of outhouse roofs, and they could see him. They shouted at him, and at one point Kev said, you want shooting? Wilkinson reported this as a murder attempt. The police searched the firearms licence records and David, was the, uh, David the Clay Pigeon Shooter was the only one of the local miners to have one. For the record, the police did try to extract a confession, but David Handy was released without charge. But I mentioned the story about Jill, then the ceiling, because it feels typical of, of the family. David insists that it's her resilience that got the family through the strike and the struggles that came after it. The girls remember their, the girls remember their childhoods with their dad mainly at work or out and their mam holding things together. Even when I was a child, I thought she was like superwoman, says Kate now. She was just like, and then she stops and searches for a word, a mother. I always, I always wanted to be like her. Now, in the 1920s, the Durham miners' wives were once referred to as the slaves of slaves. The, obviously, the primary slaves being the men at the pit. And that sounds extreme, but it is true that they played a crucial part in the industry by caring for the workers and bringing up the next generation. And let's not forget either the women actually employed in the collieries. Marion Handy, George's wife, might have had one of the toughest jobs in Easington Colliery, the cleaner of the pit head baths. In the days, she's keen to point out, when it was all done by mop. In the later 1980s, Jill worked at a supermarket in Peter Lee, and she once described her schedule to me from those days. I would do a night shift sometimes. Before I went to work, I'd do the cereal and the uniforms and everything, and then when I came home from the night shift, David would have already gone to work, so then I had to get the three kids ready and off to school, and then I would go to bed for a couple of hours before David came in from work. By that time, the three kids would be coming back and then it would be nearly time to, for me to go to work again and I'd start all over again. That sort of fortitude became crucial eight years later, in 1993, when the pit closed. By this point, the Handys had another four, had a two-year-old son called Stuart and David and Jill remember the closure. And they remember just asking each other, what are we going to do? David repeats it over and over again. We just said, he said, what are we going to do? What the hell are we going to do? Uh, everything at the time had gone. The shipyards had gone and the mining had gone now and the factories were full. There were several cases of depression and in the surrounding area there were suicides that perhaps couldn't be directly attributed to the closure but certainly made you wonder. A lot of people lost their families because the husbands went and worked away and then never came back again. The village began to change. Local people had made a plan suggesting what would need to happen to the, the housing to stop it becoming cheap, sink, mass-rented uh, housing. But um, by and large, that plan was dismissed by the authorities and the landowners. 
David retrained as a bricklayer, but the work was sporadic. And so when he was offered a contract job at an operating theatre, as an operating theatre orderly at the Booper Hospital in Washington, he took it even though the pay was low. He wondered how he, a miner, would fit in with hospital staff, but in fact they loved him. Causing the charged atmosphere of a hospital, someone who can make people laugh and who puts them at their ease, has a great value. And encouraged, he asked questions. He asked questions about the, the surgery and about the process. He began to read up about the operations. And he took and passed a test which then allowed him to run an operating theatre floor. One of the surgeons spotted a talent and told the management to send him to Teesside University to train as an operating department practitioner specialising in anaesthetics. And he became a surgical assistant, helping people prepare for theatre. So soon, the problem was not fitting in. It was being swept up in a new world where you had functions and lectures and golf tournaments and where you got asked to be a Father Christmas to a doctor's children. He began to be late home. He'd never stopped talking about it. And Jill, holding the family together, found it hard. She didn't make too much of this, but it was strange when your husband, who used to work in the village with men that you knew and who was always home at predictable times, was now working with men and women and all sorts of people you didn't know, all of whom clearly worshipped the ground that he walked on. How on earth had it all happened? This total change of environment turned David's head and it put a strain on the marriage. In fact, he says now, I don't know how we managed to come through it. Well... He adds, I do, Gillian. Eventually, he came to his senses and got a job at a different hospital in Darlington, and it calmed down. They're settled now in a new house that overlooks what used to be the pit gates, and it has to be said that their pride in having managed that readjustment is on a par with the pride they have in having come through the strike. One Friday afternoon, sitting in the front room that used to overlook the pit gates, I ask if he feels like a surgeon's assistant or a miner who became a surgeon's assistant. His answer makes it sound as if minor is a lifetime vacation rather than an attitude rather than a job. Speaking to you, Richard, he says, I am a miner. It's in my blood, it's what I was born for, and I loved it. I loved it for the camaraderie and the comradeship and the friendship. Mind you, the guys at the hospital say, I seem to have been, been born to do that job as well. This is part two, Joanne and Kate. <coughs> Joanne and Kate followed their dad into healthcare, becoming an auxiliary nurse and then a ward clerk. Joanne is married to Jeff, a sheet metal worker, and they have two daughters and a son. They bought David and Jill's old house and they still live in Easington Colliery. Kate trains a dental nurse and works as one in Seaham, where she lives with her husband Pete, an engineer, and her, their daughter... Um, daughter Grace. In many ways, say the girl and Jill, their lives have been the same as their mums. The two generations have been similar. One of, they've done similar things. The, the chronology of their lives has, has followed a similar path. One of the big changes has been the relationship with their husbands. Jeff does his share of cooking and cleaning. Kate says she could make Pete do more, but likes things done her own way. I think Joanne and Kate have a slightly less venerating regard for men's work than previous generations did. 
Kate has complete respect for Dad's whole job, but she does say at one point, it was hard work, but then again, they had someone else to take care of everything, didn't they? There's a woman laughing at that one. But, um, the big generation gap, they all agree, will be between, their, between Joanne and Kate and their daughters, daughters who are growing up with access to far more consumer goods and clothes, to a, an infinite amount of information and entertainment via the internet, and also with the fear of... Uh, predatory adults that means that the world has become something to fear going into rather than to skip towards. And we sometimes, when we talk about that generation gap and the new world that those children who are 8, 9, 10 will help to construct, the mining heritage would feel distant, as far away as a ship going over the horizon or the sea. But then again, it was, but it was still meaningful and remains meaningful for Kate and Joanne. I'm very proud to tell anybody I came from Easington Colliery and that it used to be a mining village, says Kate. I'm proud that my dad worked very hard when the pit was open and that after it shut, he retrained like he did. I'm proud that my mum worked to provide for us and I'm proud that it taught me that if you want a good life, you have to go out and work for it. If you ask Joanne about a heritage... She says it was about being part of the community. I feel proud that I was part of that, and even now it still gets talked about. Where the pit was, it's all grass now, but they keep the pit cage on the hill, and when we go for walks with the kids, we tell them. We talk about the granddads going down there, and we show them the photographs of how it used to be, so it still gets passed down to them, all the history, all the stories. I am proud, but I find it hard to put into words. Part three, George and Marion, Colin and Jonas. All the history. Of course, the most infamous episode in the pit's history was in, took, took place in May 1951. And to tell that story, we'll now switch to George and Marion. In May 1951, George VI was king and Clement Attlee was prime minister. In London, the Festival of Britain had just opened... In the northeast, Newcastle United had recently returned to the, from the capital with the FA Cup won with two Jackie Milburn goals. At Easington Colliery at 4.30 in the morning of May the 29th, a build-up of gas explodes 900 feet down with the blast ripping through 16,000 yards of tunnels. The timing means that the village wakes up to the news and people pulling on clothes and hurrying down to the pit gates where the crowd was waiting for information coming up from under, from under the earth. George Handy was 12 and remembers waking and hearing the news and then feeling the relief of knowing that his dad wasn't at work. Seven-year-old Marion Golightly, who would grow up to marry George, was, was at age only seven, remembers the fear from knowing that her dad was at work somewhere out in the low main and no one had yet heard from him. George's dad, John, volunteered to go down to see what was happening. Seeing what was happening being a kind of euphemism for helping to bring up the dead and mutilated bodies. The recovery went on for weeks, weeks in which it seemed to Marion that no one in the village slept. The bodies were brought to a makeshift mortuary in the pit yard and kept in lead coffins because they were decomposing and couldn't be moved until the coroner made his report. Mr Golightly did come out alive. 81 men didn't and two rescue workers also died. And some remains were never recovered. 
Journalists came and wrote stories and took pictures. George Handy ended up in one of the photographs. And for weeks afterwards, Marion remembers, every time he went down the street, there was a funeral. Every time. Funerals in the colliery for weeks and weeks and weeks. In the Welfare Social Club, there's a picture of the men who died and a map of the district showing where each one was found. The scale and the numbers are hard to believe when you look at them now in 2015. But the stories remain very strong. The last of the widows, a Mrs Hunt, died this spring. But one of the things that is said sometimes about colliery disasters is that in being such spectacular losses of life, they attract the news media, and the news media, news media tends to give the general public the impression that this sort of thing, this death and injury, are rare, that they only happen in isolated incidents that are dreadful, but that happen and they go away. Um, the reality, as, as anyone from a mining community knows, is that they, um, they were pretty constant, and they could happen to a family at any time. And on January the 4th, 1956, four years after the Easington disaster, uh, it happened to the Handys. It was 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, a morning just after everybody had gone back to work after the Christmas break. George Handy, now 18, was in the pit offices where he worked as a clerk. He received a phone call from Sister Wood, the pit nurse. She said, George, can you just come down to the medical centre? He said, oh dear, and went down. When he got there, she said, your brother Jonas has been hurt, George. He didn't think too much of it, because Jonas, the eldest of the three boys, was a bit accident-prone. He was always burning and banging himself at home. But when the doctor came in, the mood changed. Is it bad? asked George. Very bad, George, said the doctor. How bad? He'll not be alive by the time we get him out of the pit. Is anybody with your man? Well, said George, my dad's in the pit. And my brother Ted's in the pit. So the doctor says, I'll go and see your man. You stop here till I come back. What happened was that Jonas had been standing over a stalled coal cutting machine, <coughs> trying to free up the chain. The chain had started up and the chain had risen up and, and cut very deeply into his body. He shouldn't even have been doing the job that day. But he'd been there because he was too late to work. Uh, he'd been up late in the morning and was, was rushing, being put in a different, uh, different area. After the doctor had gone, ten minutes later, the men brought Jonas's unmoving body wrapped in bloody blankets into the medical centre. And George looked at the blood on the blankets and knew... They finally got John Handy, George and Jonas's dad, out of the pit at one o'clock. Someone had told him that Jonas had broken a leg and that it would be all right. Having discovered the truth, John Handy came at the pit yard in an inconsolable rage, hoying his helmet about and banging his head against brick walls. Of course, 22 years ago, it had been his father killed and now it was his eldest son. He and George's mum never got over the accident. 
It's worth pointing out that the time of his death, Jonas Handy was 23, uh, 23 years old. He'd been married the year before, and he left a wife who was six months pregnant. Well, it was one of them things, says George Handy to me, in his house in Easington Colliery one day in September. Just one of them things. Jonas wasn't the first one to get killed at the pit, and he wasn't the last. Sometimes you, um, you hear people say, I heard people say when I was writing this piece, that uh, essentially the mining families of Durham should kind of shelve their history now, stop thinking about it so much, let the commemorations go, move on. Move on is often the phrase that's used. The problem with that argument and those admonitions is that it, they ignore two things. Firstly, they ignore all the moving on that has been done in the 20 years since the pit's closed. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, it ignores the obligations that people feel to the people who went before us who, who sacrificed themselves, whether that sacrifice was in a home or whether it was in a pit that became something rather like a grave. Those pits, the pit at Easington Colliery gave life and it took it away. It gave people the best of times and it gave them the worst of times. But maybe in the end, the most important thing it taught people was respect for themselves and for each other and for the past. I would suggest that the admonishers and, uh, and the movers on bear that respect in mind and perhaps try to learn some of it themselves.